Welcome to Live in There podcast, your show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by LiveInThere.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstmann. This is episode number 12, and I'm interviewing Ariel Garten. Ariel is a psychotherapist, neuroscientist, entrepreneur, public speaker, and the CEO of Interaxon, the company behind Muse which is a brain-sensing headband that helps people meditate, a clinical-grade EEG in your pocket. In this episode, we will talk about her personal journey into meditation, what is Muse and how it can help you meditate, and the convergence of technology and personal and spiritual growth. All right, let's get started. Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Living There community. It's great to have you on. My pleasure to be here. Excited to share. I'd like to hear a bit about your personal journey. How did you arrive at meditation in your life? I was always fascinated with meditation. Even as a young child, like seven or eight years old, I would lie in my bed at night and try to meditate. I would try to let my mind go blank or connect to something else or go to a different place. And I really at that point knew nothing about what meditation really was. I just knew it was fascinating. I took that fascination with the mind and what it could do and turned it into a career in neuroscience and psychotherapy. And I was teaching people to deal with their anxiety, with their depression, tools and techniques I was giving them around learning to manage their mental state, to change their personal stories, to not get caught up in the stories we tell ourselves, to kill the inner critic. All of those were getting at the tools and techniques that meditation gave you, but from different angles and with different names. So when we started to form Interaxon and take our technology to market, meditation became a very obvious way for us to apply it in the real world. So our technology, for people who don't know, lets you actually track your brain in real time. So it tracks your brain activity and sends it to your smartphone or tablet and recognize that the most important thing that you can control is actually your own mind. And so we started building a tool that lets you track what goes on in your brain during meditation and helps you build states of focused attention and get over all of those hurdles to getting into a practice and knowing if you're quote unquote doing it right. How did you get exposed to meditation as a seven-year-old kid? Was it a, a show you watched or a monk that you saw in the street? What was it? I knew that it existed, and I was fascinated by everything to do with the brain and how it worked and how it processed. As I grew up, I traveled a lot. I was fortunate enough to travel with my family. So by the time I was a teenager, I'd been to Nepal. When I was 16, I went to Tibet, and that was in the early 90s. And so then I became exposed to Tibetan Buddhism and Mahayana. So, you know, the fascination continued from there. Wow. So the meditation technique that you practice, is it Vipassana or Shamatha? What, what is the technique? Like really started my own practice. It was around building the muse. Because the muse was the thing that let me actually start a practice and take it from the theoretical into a practical and something I could really do every day. And, and so Muse is shamatha based, so it's focused attention on the breath. Mm-hmm. And then once you get the shamatha based practice, the world of meditation is open to you. From there, you can move into open monitoring, body scans, really dive into also the things that literature has to offer and bring the literature to life when you can actually start to build a practice behind it because you've built that basic skill of focused yes. attention. Yes. Uh, I see so many people wanting to go directly to open monitoring without building enough capacity to concentrate and to be steady. And it is really hard. It's not as enjoyable as if you can already stabilize your mind somehow. 
You know, when I was in university, I took a lot of drama classes and a you know typical drama technique to get yourself relaxed and in the zone is to do a body scan or do open monitoring, listen to the sounds around the room. And nobody ever describes that this is meditation mm -hmm. and nobody ever teaches you that you really need to build that attention before you can move it around the room, move it around your body. Yeah. So you use this mostly for measuring the, the effects of focused attention or can you use it also for open monitoring? So the application in Muse is very specifically built. The algorithm is built on focused attention on the breath. Okay. So when you muse, you're listening to the sound of your mind when it's in focused attention on the breath, and then you can hear when your mind wanders, when it wanders away from the breath and becomes more active. And then it gives you real-time feedback to know that your mind's wandered, and that's your cue to bring it back to the breath. So what's happening in the brain during uh, focused attention or open monitoring is actually different. We started to build algorithms with body scan, with open monitoring, um, and those algorithms look very different than just a focused attention on the breath algorithm. Okay. Without going much into the algorithm, but just like the, the brain science, can you explain for people that are not neuroscientists, like what's the difference between focused attention and open monitoring in your brain? Sure. So when you're in a state of focused attention, a couple things are happening. One, you have a predominance of alpha. So alpha activity is the decrease in external sensory processing. So when you have an increase in alpha, it means that you are not processing external sensory sounds. Whereas when you're in a state of open monitoring, for example, exactly what you're doing is processing external sensory sounds. We also look at how active your brain is, how often it jumps from item to item. And then our algorithm is also tailored to each individual. So you do a calibration initially, and then we see how you do relative to that calibration. I see. So how exactly does it measure your brain? So we use EEG sensors, the same thing that you use in a hospital. And we have two sensors on the forehead and two sensors behind the ears that is used to track your neuronal activity. So when you think, when you do anything mental, your neurons fire, sending electrochemical impulse from one to the other. The sum total of that electrical chemical impulse is actually read on the surface of your head. And then we take that data and we break it down into its component bands to look at your brain and where it is at that moment, what the dynamics are, how it jumps around and what's actually going inside your head. Wow, a lot of things are happening inside that little device. Amazing. <laughs> a lot of things are happening inside your head. Your head's more impressive than our device. <laughs> That's right. What is exactly meditation in the brain? Like, did you test on Buddhist monks that could go into meditation easily, or you tested with yourself? How did you, how did you arrive at the conclusion as what is calm? What is the threshold of calm? We tested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people during meditation. Monks with 30, 40, 50,000 hours of practice. And then we also looked at novices, and then we looked at uh, meditators who'd been meditating for one to two years, and then four to five years. And you can't take the brain of an expert meditator who's meditated for 30 years and say, well, this novice brain looks kind of like it at these fleeting moments, and so they're meditating. That's not going to work. Hmm. Um, so we have to build algorithms and experiences that really work for each step of the game and know what meditation looks like when you're a beginner and what meditation looks like when you're an intermediate meditator and then encourage and coax people to the next level. If a person is a beginner and buys the muse and tries to meditate, you're not comparing that person's performance with like the peak of meditation, but rather to the calibration that he did? Exactly. Yeah, you're compared to yourself and to other meditators of your level. And, you know, we're, we're comparing your brain to itself and to how other people with similar brain activity, how their brains look and how their brains respond. And we're very specifically saying, okay, you're nearing a state of focused attention, you're in a state of focused attention, yes, you've got that state of focused attention, hold it. 
So when I do my Muse sessions and I see, let's say, uh, 92%, if another person does it and also gets 92%, actually means different things or is it kind of on the same level? Um, so it's calibrated to you individually. So okay. the two 92%, they both mean that it's excellent, but somebody else's excellent is going to be very different than your excellent. I see. We don't find it useful to you know compare you to everybody in the world and say, you are 10% of the top meditators. <laughs> Yeah. This is a very personal journey, and the, the scores and the stats are about you and how you perform relative to yourself hmm. and how you can improve and learn from your own experience. Some people call this spiritual materialism. My state is deeper than yours, or my ego is smaller than yours, and not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> my ego is smaller than yours. <laughs> Amazing. As somebody that has been uh, in spiritual circles for a while, and both online and offline, I've seen a lot of things like this. So not One here. of the things that was actually really difficult for us as we started building the tool was saying, okay, well, we're building something that has gamified elements to it. How do you do that in a way that's not going to create this endless internal sense of competition? Hmm. And for us, the birds were actually a mechanism to sort of undermine the competitive element of it. So when you are really focused and you're really in state, a bird will come, a metaphorical virtual bird will come and sit next to you and start tweeting. So you hear the tweet of birds. And then most people get so excited that they've heard birds that they get all excited and then the bird flies away. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this little lesson in non-striving. Like, yes, you can get these rewards, but if you get so caught up in them, don't worry about the reward. Yes. And once I start concentrating really well, there's a lot of birds that come. But then if I notice them, like objectively notice them, then slowly they start disappearing. Yep. Subtle little undermining to goal states. <laughs> I notice sometimes in Muse, the line completely touches the bottom for a few seconds. Uh, that means you're really in a stable state of focused attention. Again, this becomes difficult because we don't want to ascribe a good or a bad to it, but it means that that's a... Uh, probably a pretty amazing state to be in. Okay, so ideally, so to speak, the more our line can touch the bottom and kind of stay like that, the better. And again, there are no ideals, but it does mean that you're better able to hold that concentrated state. Mm -hmm. In Terexon, are you still working on controlling physical objects with your mind? So we have a large community of developers, um, hundreds of them who do all sorts of fun implementations like World Trade Organization, a company called Anthrotronics is uh, making a robotic arm where your cognitive load changes the way that the arm behaves and interacts. People who are making games that you play with your mind, really fun and engaging stuff with the technology. And all of this is using the concentration ability of the mind or also other patterns of brain configuration? The focused attention meditation algorithm is just an R application. Mm -hmm. um, in the developer kit, we have a different algorithm that is a concentration algorithm. And so developers use that one. They build their own algorithms. They build cognitive load algorithms like for the robotic arm. Okay. And I heard in one of your interviews mentioning that therapists are using Muse with their patients. So we actually have an amazing program with hundreds and hundreds of psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, life coaches um, who use Muse with their clients. And so I know as a therapist, I would tell my clients to meditate. They look at me and they do kind of the same thing that I did when I was a child, which is they go home and they let their mind go blank and it doesn't really work very well. And they come back and say, okay, tried it. What's next? Muse then becomes a tool where as soon as you recommend to somebody they can meditate, they give them this tool and they take it home and they use it. And then you can bring it back in and actually show your therapist how you did. You can go through session after session. You can talk about your experience. So it becomes an amazing teaching tool. Mm -hmm. And then I was actually just sitting into a session that we had here 
where we were with a group of therapists all using the muse in a group session exploring different ways to extend it so we also have therapists who will do sessions with our clients or meditation teachers and the client will muse during the session and you can actually narrate their muse experience you just turn off the volume and so it really becomes interactive so you've got the tool that you can take home and use and get your clients meditating. And then you can also build meditations for them that they can use with muse and really extend the practice. And on the therapy front, um, you know, we're seeing a range of digital tools that you can use to interact with your clients. On the doctor's front, so we have lots of doctors who also use and recommend muse as part of their practice if somebody has sleep issues or anxiety or uh, heart conditions, for example. It probably also shortcuts the learning process for the therapist about where your client is at with his mind. And... Absolutely. You know, you tell your client to go meditate and you have no idea what's going on. And when they're actually able to come in and show you the data and show you the graphs, you then have a very different kind of experience of your client. When I was a therapist, you know, we spend a lot of time talking and you get to learn about people and you're, you're constantly trying to understand and, and build a model about somebody and simultaneously also throwing the model out because you never want to impose your model of them on them. But these temporary constructs become very helpful or see how they're presenting themselves at that moment. And Muse is a different kind of mirror that can show you something about your brain and your brain activity that helps you build a momentary model that gives you insight into yourself. So I was at the um, IBT Israel Brain Tech conference in Tel Aviv, and Shimon Perez was on stage. And I didn't realize he was this amazing, truly an amazing man. He was probably 89 at the time. And he stood up and said, you know, in the past, man had a mirror. And as soon as he looked in the mirror, he realized he could comb up the hair and clean the nails and you know you really saw who he is and he responded and changed now we can do the same thing for the brain it was just really resonant that yeah we, we make this tool that lets you have a mirror into your own mind and when you have a mirror to your own behavior things change in so many ways hmm. is there any type of patient that should not use muse not in my experience and certainly not on a client-to-client basis you can make uh, decisions and assumptions because I read some research that some types of meditation may not be helpful for patients with some type of conditions. A person has strong PTSD and they try to concentrate. They may get actually more triggered or more uh, anxious. Does that correspond to what you have been observing or your experience? Certainly meditation with some clients who have difficulty going inwards and going internally can be triggering and that you need to be cautious with. Ideally, it's a tool that helps you manage what happens when you go inside. Um, But sometimes for people, quieting the rest of the world and just being with themselves brings up triggering experience and brings up exactly the kinds of thoughts that you try to busy your mind to, to avoid. The goal, of course, of meditation is to learn to one, sit with those thoughts, and two, have the option to not engage those thoughts. Yes. With Muse, it tends to not be as triggering as meditation because you're not left with your own mind. So if you have a client who, when they go inside and just sit with their own mind, is immediately triggered by their own thoughts, that experience doesn't happen in the same way with Muse because when your mind starts to wander, what you hear is the wind pick up. So you immediately have this sound that doesn't allow you to engage in the thought that kind of creates a, in some ways, a masking to your experience if it's a difficult experience, and then encourages you to bring your mind again back to this neutral object. So it can overcome some of those barriers of a triggered, quiet mind. But again, if a client has issues just 
be really cautious as you would introducing any methodology. It's a tool that you would recommend for anybody like as a mental health enhancement. Yeah, I mean, if somebody has a severe psychosis, again, Muse isn't necessarily the best intervention. There are methodologies that are probably going to be more successful for severe psychosis. So on a case-by-case basis, it should be should be assessed. But if you don't have a severe psychosis and, you know, are an average user, you have anxiety, depression, ADHD, autism, Muse has been helpful in lots of, lots and lots of these cases. And you are collecting a lot of anonymous data from from users, and I know that you are passionate about privacy and all that. My question is, what is this data teaching you about meditation? How is it helping you progress with Muse? Um, When you join the research program that allows us to do studies with accredited third parties. Um, So we have one running with McMaster University. And so we've been looking at the data. We can only see it on aggregate. So the more you meditate, the more you are able to stay in states of focused attention. We've done fun things like look at it city by city, different places in the world. We've also started to look at biomarkers and neuromarkers for meditation and see how they uh, change across age and across gender. And that data is probably going to come out at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in the fall. I think over 105 different research partners who are using Muse for a wide variety of studies. NYU is learning it, using it for learning and memory. Mayo Clinic uses Muse in its meditation application for stress reduction in cancer care patients. And they're doing a study on recovery time over surgery to see if Muse actually helps improve recovery time after cancer surgery. MIT, Harvard, and Spalding Rehab Center in Boston are doing a study on traumatic brain injury. Seed schools in Baltimore have been using Muse with underprivileged kids to help teach them emotional self-regulation. We have an anorexia clinic where every girl who comes in gets a Muse, and that's just a basic part of the treatment. Yeah, really amazing. It's kind of the only reason you get out of bed in the morning to think about how you can help. What we're doing is helping. So next is really about building more and more content and bringing in our favorite meditators into the ecosystem to build guided meditations and build experiences that teach people how to go deeper in their practice and how to use the tool. For me, it's also about giving people keys to enter different parts of different meditation universes. So it's not just about Muse. Muse is an entryway to a world of meditation that then exists without the Muse. Um, and that you take the skills that you've learned while using Muse and you take that out into the world. Yeah, I think for many people it's an entry point to meditation in a way that they perhaps wouldn't have tried otherwise because they feel they don't know what they're doing. It's really great. It's helping popularize meditation. Yeah, for all those people who say, okay, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know what's going on in there. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. This is just that tool that's really easy and guides you into it and gets you over the hurdle. For people that already have a practice and find it hard to stick with it. The subtle gamification and the motivation is something that just encourages them to come back each and every day and helps you build a practice. And we have some people who are already expert meditators and they'll do Muse as a three minute session prior to a one hour meditation on their own. So it allows them to just kind of short circuit getting into their own practice each morning. Yeah, I've been meditating for a while and the way I use Muse is to make experiments with my mind, basically. So once you start kind of going a little bit deeper in meditation, you see that there are many subtle differences on the way you focus. And then I'll do one session when I focus slightly this way and see the result. And on another session, I focus slightly different and see the result. So I'm using Muse to help understand what's going on in my mind. Amazing. One of the goals of meditation and mindfulness is this process of self-inquiry and really being a consciousness explorer. 
exploring all of the dimensions and definitions to our own mind and how it works. And it's really exciting that, you know, our tool has in some way helped you gain a slightly different perspective. Hmm. You know, it's been hmm. a tool to help you dig in mind, kind of a magnifying lens. Yeah. Um, fun, 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 fun. Yeah, also what I did, I, I got a few different meditation techniques and, and tried all of them on Muse to see what works best for me. And that's a question I get all the time from people in my blog, like, what meditation should I try? And if you have Muse, you can try different ones and see how your brain responds to them. And then you have a better idea which one works best for you. And the winner is? For me, the winner is self-inquiry. I don't know if you have heard of it. It's a practice from Ramana Maharshi. Fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. Breathing awareness was also fine. And also the yogic meditation of focusing on the, on the space between the eyebrows, which is what they call mm -hmm. the third eye, so to speak. I also saw good results with that one. Amazing. <laughs> Moving to the second part of our talk, I'd like to, to pick your brain on the convergence of technology and, and personal growth. How do you see technology in the next 10 or 20 years helping people hack their minds? So technology has an amazing ability to, as we've talked about, offer a lens onto our own mind. So tools like Muse give you that lens and they also give you something to practice. We're also seeing lots of stimulation technologies arise, um, and it's really early days in stimulation technologies. They're not necessarily validated or proven, but over time we'll see that change. We're going to see stimulation get more targeted and with better and better validation. You're going to see new stimulation methodologies. So of course, there's uh, TCDS, transcranial direct current stimulation. There is TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and right now that's only for clinical use. Probably within the next six or seven years, there's going to be a home-use TMS, ultrasound as a stimulation device, not just a recording device. And there's interesting work there that's really early on, but will definitely be, be improving. And then we're also going to see mapping technologies, using things like ultrasound more to give people personal maps of their own brain. Wow, that's quite interesting. So there's a little device called the FNIRS, Functional Neurospectroscopy, and that allows you to assess the hemodynamic response, the amount of blood flow in a particular area, just in the top few centimeters in your cortex. And so you could, you know, have a device where your head is essentially covered by FNIRS, hundreds of little IR sensors, and get a real map of your own brain and how your blood flows, and then see the areas that are active only from a cortical level relative to different activities. So what is the idea behind? Is it that you stimulate a certain part of the brain so that that part has more activity and that part grows? So it's electrical stimulation, and electrical stimulation can either upregulate or downregulate, be excitatory or inhibitory. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at uh, stimulating a particular part of the brain and exciting it, so creating more and stronger neural connections and also creating activity in that area so that area is active. The functions of that area are theoretically enhanced or inhibiting. Sometimes you encourage the functionality of other parts of your brain by inhibiting it. So creativity, for example, is often enhanced by inhibiting some of your conscious cognitive control. I see. So you could also decrease the size of the amygdala, for instance, and help people have less of fear and stress responses. Yeah, so the amygdala is buried a little bit deeper in your brain, so that typically doesn't respond to stimulation. But you can use technology that in the future will allow you to penetrate more deeply and converge a beam from multiple angles to potentially upregulate or downregulate your amygdala. However, I might add that this, this is speculative. Also, when you start wholesale affecting brain regions, you can't always predict what's going to happen and it's not always necessarily the best thing. So you might 
think, oh, well, I want to downregulate the amygdala. That will be greater. So you don't really want to wholesale upregulate or downregulate hmm. massive structures. That said, there's always going to be consciousness explorers who explore and experiment and in some senses take one for the team and share with us what they've learned, yeah. their modifications of their own brain. So do you see it happening that I could, for instance, put a certain uh, brain cap and say, ah, I want more, I want to develop more patience or more compassion or more ability to concentrate. And then it kind of runs a program that stimulates that area and I suddenly have that virtue. I don't know if it's ever going to be that simple. I mean, certainly people promise that now. There are lots of promises in neurofeedback that you can slip on 19 or 32 lead cap and run a program and magically end up with more patience or more concentration. And some of it does have a short-term effect and pushes you in that direction. But I'm going to call that one an art a lot more than a science. Hmm. It's hard to comment on the specific effect of it. Because there's not a lot of peer-reviewed studies on that one. And, and about Muse, can it be used or, or do you see it being developed in a way that you could use it for measuring other aspects of your, of your mind? Like, for instance, in loving-kindness meditation, could you use it to measure how much of self-acceptance and, and love and, and happiness you are developing inside your brain? I love this question because what I really want to focus on is loving-kindness meditation. I would love to, love to, love to, like, I adore meta. We have actually started to look at uh, loving-kindness meditation with four sensors. I don't know how specific we can really get. So I don't know that we can see that you're doing loving-kindness versus something else. But certainly with some brainwave data plus uh, context around it, we can start to build those kinds of experiences. Interesting. I would say that at heart I am more of an old-school meditation guy, but at the same time I'm a bit of a geek. So I like technology and I like thinking on, of how technology can help my own meditation practice. And Muse was actually the first device or the first try that I had in this aspect, and I liked it. And that's why I'm recommending it to my readers and my listeners. There's a very detailed review I wrote on my blog, and I really recommend for people that feel they don't know what's going on inside their brain or if they're doing meditation correctly or not, or perhaps they need a bit of, a, of an encouragement to continue to practice. I think Muse can definitely help. Fantastic. Well, we certainly hope that's the case. That's why we, we built it. And then when we built it, we said, wow, this really works. Okay, we can actually go out to people with it. <laughs> We've really validated that it works. We're not here to waste time. Too many, too many things to do in life when real stuff to get done. Hmm. Closing up with a personal question. If you could go back in time 10 or 15 years, what advice would you give your past self? Oh, that's an amazing question. So, of course, running through my head now is, if I could turn back time, <laughs> if I could find a way. Um, so if I could turn back time, I really wouldn't do anything differently. So I would really just tell myself to enjoy it all, to just go through it with an open heart, with so much joy to the entire world while I was doing whatever it was that I was doing. And that joy is going to be infectious and lead to more and more positivity and more and more action. For me, it's always been about doing stuff, being engaged, making things in the world and hopefully making it better. But who the hell knows? Nobody ever knows what's better and what's worse. You just do absolutely the best that you can and, and hope that it's helping. And for me, it's always been about being open and joyous and inspired while doing it. So I would, I would encourage my young self to really embrace that and embody that in every possible moment and hopefully feel that it's infectious. Ariel, thanks again for being here. I personally learned a lot from this interview. So my pleasure. And thank you for asking me questions that I actually hadn't considered before to think about those answers. That was awesome. Nice. For those people that want to contact you, what would be the best way? Find me on Twitter. We're at Choose Muse or tweet me Ariel underscore Garten or 
sing and I'll sing back. Nice. That was the interview with Ariel Garten. If you want to purchase the Muse headband, please go to livingthere.com slash choose Muse. That's my affiliate link for the product and I appreciate your support. You can find the show notes for this episode without the links, names and resources mentioned at livingthere.com slash episode 12. If this was your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners of different meditation techniques, so be sure to stick around. Please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. And if you learned something valuable today, it will mean a lot to me if you leave a comment to the shows on iTunes or on the blog. You can follow me on Twitter at geo underscore self. And as usual, we ended with a quote, this one from Alan Watts, the famous writer on Zen and Taoism. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way to get back to where I started. Ba, ba, ba. <laughs> I'm leaving this bit on. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed to add for fun with the quote. <laughs>